Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again come before you and are just thankful to be able to uh, share with you and share with each other the beauties of your kingdom. We ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us today and lighten our minds, draw our hearts closer to you. And we ask that your spirit will move upon hearts and minds of those watching uh, via internet and other uh, platforms that uh, they will be blessed and that uh, the avenues for this message will lighten the world. And we pray you will come soon. Your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements again to make. I want to remind people of the Power of Love training and equipping course, January 17 through 19. And we have over 360 people now signed up. It's going to be a great time for sharing and also equipping to be able to take this message to the world. So we're doing lesson number 12, dealing with bad decisions in the quarterly Ezra and Nehemiah. And before we actually get to lesson 12, I want to follow up with something from last week. And for those who were here last week, you knew we had a little bit of difficulty working our way through the lesson with the noise problems that we had. So um, I want to pick up uh, in Thursday's lesson from lesson 11. Because I've received several emails recently about something I said about the flood a few weeks back. And some people have been very concerned because they have a a love for God and a love for the right representation of God's character. I've gotten several long and well thought out emails concerned that I'm misrepresenting God by suggesting that God, you know, put people to death in Bible times at any time for any reason, that it makes God the source of death and so forth. I want to explore that under the the uh, Thursday's lesson where Nehemiah reminded them that their forefathers broke trust with God and Nehemiah stated to them, did not our God bring all this evil upon us? It was a a scripture uh, uh, quotation of Nehemiah. So the first question is, does God bring evil? No, he does not bring evil ever, ever. Ever, absolutely not. God never brings evil. So what can this statement of Nehemiah mean when, God, when he says God brought all this evil against us? Well, it can mean a couple of things. One, people attributing to God what God permits, but God does not stop from happening. That's one interpretation. Another is that people misunderstand a therapeutic action like discipline from a parent to a child, and the child might misunderstand and think the parent is doing evil or harming the child. So it could be a therapeutic action being misunderstood by the the parties involved. Well, let's examine some cases. And the big point that most Christians who have a, uh, a, 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 a desire to defend God's character struggle with are places in Scripture where the, pe- where the action taken results in death of people, where people die. That's where people struggle. Uh, the, they don't really struggle too much when it's understood to be discipline of some kind. People understand love will discipline. But when, when people die, they struggle to understand that. The argument goes that God will never use his power to cause death. That death only and always comes from breaking God's law, from, be, from beings who are sinful, Satan and evil people causing death. And the confusion comes because the Bible has a human and a divine definition for death. I'm going to pause there so you can process. There's a human definition in the Bible of death, and there's a divine definition in the Bible of death. 
If we confuse the two, then we confuse what's transpiring. The human definition for death is what all of us call death and what we grieve when one of our loved ones die. This, however, is not what God calls death. God, including Jesus, when he was on earth as a human being, referred to this experience as sleep. Not as death. In fact, Jesus said that those who believe in him will never die. Now, do you see how much of our minds discount that? We go with the human definition. No, they died. According to Jesus, they never died. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees when they were criticizing him about with the question, you know, the questions of the Sadducees, uh, the, the man uh, has a wife and, and he dies and she marries the brother and on and on and on, all the way down all seven. Now, whose spouse will she be in heaven? They were really trying to trap him because they didn't believe in a resurrection or a hereafter. And Jesus said to them, you don't even read the scriptures. The Bible says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, Jesus is saying, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are not dead. I'm the God, and he says, I'm the God of the living. So, first idea here is, do we, when we read scripture, and see people dying, are we reading in the human definition, or are we reading in the God definition? What God calls death uh, so so this, this death is that first death. Jesus said they will never die. They may sleep in the grave. They may sleep in the grave. Millions sleep in the grave. But according to Jesus, they're not dead. This sleep death, what we call death, is also known as the first death and is the death or the experience from which there is a resurrection. What God calls death, though, is what the Bible refers to as the second death. The eternal death, the death from which there is no resurrection. Any questions so far on this idea? This is a critical idea to be able to understand what you're reading in Scripture. If you mix these two up, then you will mix up what's happening in the Bible. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Doesn't that lend itself so nicely to your new paradigm definition that those who believe in him will never die? That's right. They're still in existence. Their characters are still being worked on and cleansed. Yes, this is exactly right. They, they are not dead. They're not operating or conscience. It's like your computer. When your computer's in sleep mode, the data is still there, but it's not doing anything. But it's not destroyed. So how many... Question now. With these two ideas of death in mind... Second death experience is eternal, non-existence, annihilation, the death from which there is no resurrection. Right? Everybody with me? How many people in history have died that second death from which there is no resurrection? We don't know. No one. No one that we know of. Okay? If you want to put that in there, no one. According to inspiration, there are those who were held so dark in slavery that they... They will not be resurrected. They will be as though they never existed. Thank, we actually don't know. Thanks for bringing that up. Sure. To confuse the question. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't mention it. <laughs> yeah. Again, that is, that is not uh, really my understanding. If you look at that, that's... You could call it technically the second death, but it's not the second death. If we understand the second death is the death that comes when the persons themselves surrender because they, this, these would be people that 
according to the author who wrote that, will be as if they never were. Where is that? Uh, just go and do your CD-ROM search on slavery as if never w- were or was. Okay, Slaves that were held in abject dark- darkness, that author wrote, um, that God can't do anything for them because they had no light or truth presented to them. And so he does the best thing he can for them, and they don't rise in either resurrection. So... I, I didn't want to get off on that because it's a distraction, but thank you, Russell. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. Okay. So back to the question. Has anybody that we know of in inspiration anywhere died the second death? No. From which there's no resurrection. Okay. So none, if none have died that death, then how can we say God kills if that's the definition of death? And the reason we say it? is because when people read scripture, they're not using the divine definition of death. They're using the human definition of death. And when they confuse the two, errors occur on both sides of the, uh, of the question. On the one side, failing to understand the difference between this first and second death, people look at the Old Testament and then teach that God is the source of death and that God does kill and that death comes out from him to inflict suffering and punishment for sin upon people. That's an error because they confuse the two. On the other side, there are those who love God and love his character and rightly reject the idea that God is the source of death, and I reject the idea that God is the source of death. But having not made the distinction between first death and second death, they then look at the Bible and say, in all those circumstances where we find God putting, the Bible describes God putting people in the grave in the sleep experience, no, that wasn't God. Because God doesn't bring death because they don't distinguish sleep from death. Therefore, it must be Satan doing it. So this is God withdrawing his hand, and it's always Satan doing it. Or evil people. That's another error. And some people believe that Jesus died the second death. I didn't want to have to go into that question either. (laughs) But you've raised it. (laughs) So if we use the biblical definition of second death, use your Bibles, go to every place it's referred to, and then define what it is. It's the death from which there is no resurrection. If we accept that definition, did Jesus stay dead or did he rise? If we say that Jesus died the second death, then then he hasn't risen. And Paul says we are men that are without hope. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then our whole experience is hopeless. Secondly, Jesus said that the second death, he didn't use the term, but he described it uh, in Matthew 10 when he talks about those... um, in the first death experience, they don't have to fear those who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul, the psyche, the individuality. Okay? That's the first death. The body can be destroyed, but they can't destroy your soul, your individuality, the evil people. The, but, the, but the second death is where not only body is gone, but your soul, your individuality is destroyed. Did Jesus have his individuality destroyed at the cross? Or it, when, they, when he rose in death? This same Jesus, they said. Okay, it was his individuality was intact. And then Timothy says, Paul, writing to Timothy, says that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. The second death experience is when people are destroyed and angels are destroyed by sin. Death destroys them. But Christ actually destroyed death. 
He was not destroyed by death. He was the victor over death, and he owes the keys to it. So I reject the idea that Christ died the second death. The people that use that language use that language because they're operating under a penal legal model. And if the legal model is and the penalty is second death, then somebody has to pay the penalty. If Jesus didn't die, my penalty is not paid, and they get scared, and they get angry. No, we have a much better message. And the better message is that sin and the cause of death was destroyed by Christ at the cross and he is now the victor over death and he offers us the remedy that frees us from the consequences or the, the outcome of what sin does. And what does sin do? Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. And Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of the world. No, who takes away the sin of the world. And so by overcoming the sin and destroying the sin, which causes the death, he destroys the death, and therefore he is the source of life for us. Okay, so back to the question. (laughs) Has anyone died the second death that we know of? No. And so if no one's ever died the second death, and that's the divine definition for death, then you can't read the Bible and say God killed people. Unless you confuse the two and make first death, which God calls a sleep death, but it's not. Jesus said again, those who believe in him never die. So no one has been killed by God. The next question then is, has he ever used his power to put people to sleep? Put people in sleep mode. Okay, that's a a different question. When people go into this first death experience, there's multiple reasons for that. One, just old age, disease, the body wearing out because we are no longer in the perfect physiology that God created Adam and Eve in. The body just wears out and some people die of old age and disease. No infliction of it. It's just the consequence of what's happening to nature. Others, there's accidents, falls, injuries, again, without a specific infliction of death, just the result of our bodies being subject to damage in the first death experience. But there are many examples in Scripture when the first death is brought not by natural causes, but by other means. Let's examine those. Sometimes in Scripture, Satan acts to cause harm and first death experience, and it is attributed to God. I'll read you the, the, the uh, verse. Uh, Job 1, 16. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants... And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. So here is an example, and we know from the rest of the context that God was not acting here. God withdrew a protective hand and gave Satan permission to act. And this was an act of Satan, but it is being attributed by the people who live in that time to God. They believe God is doing this. So one possibility when you read scripture and you hear God is doing something is it's not God, it's, it's Satan doing it, but it's being attributed to God. Next, sometimes evil people do the act and cause the death, but it's attributed to God. How did King Saul die? He committed suicide falling on his own sword. But notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. So sometimes, when Satan acts to cause death, it's attributed to God in Scripture. Sometimes, when people cause the death, it's attributed to God in Scripture. It's described that way. Third, sometimes God actually acts to put people to sleep in the grave, and it's rightly attributed to God. I will read to you 2 Kings 1, 
10 through 15. And all those who object to this idea, uh, they have to explain this, this scripture. Elijah answered the captain, If I am the man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50 men. At, at this the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. And the captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain and his 50 men. The third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of, the 50, of these 50 men. Your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. Then the angel of the Lord, and who is the angel of the Lord primarily, almost always in, in Scripture? Jesus. Yeah, this is, this is Jesus. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go, with, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. I think this is God acting here. And then one more, and we're going to unpack some more of this. And then at other times, it was God removing his protection and allowing nature or natural results of human forces to take their course, such as the scorpions and the snakes in the desert when he removed his, his hand, or when the Babylonians took them captive. So we find in Scripture that some of the things attributed to God are not done by God. But sometimes God did act to put people to sleep in the first death. It is not reasonable, in my view, to believe that in the story of Elijah that Satan, after years of trying to get Elijah destroyed so that Baal worship can infect all the people of Israel and destroy the image of God and destroy the avenue for the coming Messiah, that suddenly if God removes his hand, that these uh, soldiers that Ahab has sent to arrest and destroy Elijah, Satan will suddenly destroy those and protect Elijah. It makes further, it makes no sense that when Elijah, man of God, calls fire down in heaven as evidence, if I'm a man of God that Satan would oblige him and endorse him as a man of God. It's not rational. Yes? Except that Satan has convinced you that, that God did it. And God was evil and therefore angry. So God was evil. Okay? Satan has convinced me of this. Put people to death. And the death to not kill commandment is only dealing with the first death because that's the only one we have access to. Ah, but who is that commandment given to? Was that commandment given to God? It's all of us, but it's his character, is it not? Yeah, but, but do you have the ability to wake people up? No. Does he? Of course. So is it, did God give this command to human beings? Thou shalt not put people to sleep under anesthesia. Did he give them that command? Of course not. Is it evil for us to put people to sleep under anesthesia? No. Why? Because we can wake them up. See, you're equating our abilities with the Lord's abilities. This is a big difference. And this is, again, the conflation that people do. Conflating means bringing two things together and treating them the same when they're not. First death experience, according to Christ, again, those who believe in me will never die. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God. He made it very clear to them. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. We see those things we call death, and we think it's death. God says it's not death. And so today people still struggle because they stay stuck in this idea that first death is death. It's not. 
First death is a sleep state where individuality still exists. Second death is what God calls death. And so in in the way I view Scripture, God has killed no one, but God at times has put people to sleep. If we don't believe God put people to sleep here in the Elijah story, do we actually believe, or the firstborn of Egypt? Firstborn of Egypt, you understand, God is showing the fallacy of all the gods of Egypt. First nine plagues. Tenth plague also. Do we believe this happened? Satan? I told them that the firstborn is going to die because they, they worship the firstborn situation and the way their, uh, their false gods work. Um, I'm really counting on you this time. Just kill the firstborn for me. Make me look good. I mean, this is what we have to believe if we believe that Satan came along and killed all the firstborn because God withdrew his hand. That Satan's cooperating to help God look good. The flood, um, I actually do believe, was God... Uh, acting to um, keep open avenue for Messiah. There's only one righteous man left on the earth and Satan is trying to stop the plan of salvation. But there are explanations. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that. There are explanations that God's withdrawing his hand and nature is falling apart. And I'm not opposed to that explanation either. I think that's plausible. Um, But at the end of the day, you can't explain Elijah, the firstborn of Egypt, the uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and so many of these others cannot be explained by God simply withdrawing his hand and Satan cooperating with him to get this outcome. So the only way to make sense, there's two critical points that I, that I want people to understand. You have to differentiate first and second death. If you don't, then you see first death and you say, God kills, that's evil, God won't do evil, God won't kill. Let's keep unpacking because i got some more evidence to bring. I also reject, so I reject the view that God is the source of death. I reject it. But I don't see first death as death. It's sleep. Those who believe in Christ never die. They never die. If I believe Jesus, they're not dead. If they're not dead, then God couldn't have killed them because they're not dead. But if we don't believe Jesus and they are dead, then we can go back to the Old Testament and say, well, God killed because they're dead. So we, we have a tension there. We have to reconcile those. I, I agree with Jesus, they're not dead, so therefore God couldn't have killed anyone. The second death is the ultimate, and that is what God calls death. I also reject the view, since God wasn't killing people, that this is punishment for sin, because the punishment for sin is which death? First death or second death is the punishment for sin? So anybody in Old Testament times that God put in the grave is not being punished, because punishment for sin is eternal non-existence. That happens after the judgment. Judgment hasn't happened yet. It's also not the same experience. It's a sleep experience, not an eternal annihilation experience, which is the punishment for sin. So God is not punishing sin in Old Testament times. So we have to have another explanation then, an explanation that maintains the beauty of God's character and does not show him as being the inflictor of harm, of suffering, of pain, of death. Well, what is that explanation? It's found in understanding two things. Great controversy. What's actually transpiring what God's working to accomplish. We have to understand those. How reality actually works. Once Adam sinned, could the human race be saved without Jesus Christ? Did the devil know that a Messiah was coming? If you believe Genesis 3, God actually says to the devil, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush you. Your hold is not... and, and, And yes, you'll bruise his heel, but you're going to be crushed. Do you think the devil goes on vacation? Or does he begin to work to oppose the plan? 
And the entire Old Testament's main theme of the Old Testament is God working to bring Messiah. The entire central focus of Old Testament is there's a Messiah coming. There's a Savior coming. Adam and Eve's first child they were hoping was the Savior. All down through history. And, the, and Satan is working constantly to try and stop it. At the time of the flood, according to Bible, there's one righteous man left on the earth and his family. If we believe the Bible, the whole rest, of, and, and, and by the evidence that nobody else got on the ark... Those hearts were closed. Now, think this through. Will God have a, 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 a baby Jesus, our Savior, born to a woman like Jezebel? Would he? Would he force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? No. So in order for Jesus to come, it requires a willing, righteous person to be the mother of Jesus. If Satan can get all hearts to harden... He shuts the avenue. He destroys the plan. You say, that's ridiculous. Millions. Again, look at the time of script, at the time of the flood. If we believe it, there was only one righteous man. So God acts to keep open avenue for sight. This was not punishment for sin. Sleep, death. They're all going to rise again. This was a therapeutic intervention because without Christ, the entire species, every person ever born in history will be lost without Christ. God's not going to let us. He loves us too much for God to love the world. Some still don't like this argument. I got this in an email. Thus to rely on the argument that God was compelled to put to sleep, often through violence, millions of evil people at the flood or at other times in order to prevent Satan from snuffing out the possibility of the Messiah landing on earth is to agree with Satan that love is not really enough to overcome evil so there must be times when force has to be used. This argument, with the, again, passionate. Can you see the passion and the desire, uh, the goodwill, the good heart of this person who wants God to be presented in the best light possible? I think this person's heart is for the Lord completely. But there's a, there's, a, there's a major fact not being considered by this person that allows their good heart to come to a conclusion that's wrong. What major fact did you hear missing? Notice the premise. Uh, there is... Uh, to rely on the argument that God was compelled to use violence and millions of people to put to sleep in order to keep open avenue of Messiah, they say, agrees with Satan that love is not really enough to overcome evil. Guess what, guys? Once Adam sinned, the condition of the human species was changed. And here's a truth. After Adam sinned, love could not overcome evil in human beings without Jesus. Once Adam sinned, love could not overcome uh, evil within the human being without Jesus. In fact, Jesus was the means for God to restore love and his perfect, perfect character into the human being. One of the founders of the SDA Church wrote the following in Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against the host, God, God of hosts. 
There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of of the law of God. And evil will always league against good. Fallen men and fallen angels enter into a desperate companionship. We could not overcome evil without Jesus. And so he believes, and I asked him, I emailed him, if you have some evidence, some rationale, some explanation, some reason, some plan where God could overcome evil without Jesus coming as our Messiah, show me that. There's been silence on that end. I haven't gotten a response. So the entire focus of the Old Testament, again, is the Messiah is coming and Satan is working to stop it. That's what's happening in Old Testament times. With this in mind, we look at the question of Nehemiah and his reference of God bringing evil upon us. And we'll look at all those examples, sometimes Satan, sometimes evil people, sometimes God acting, sometimes God withdrawing. And what is the understanding of the truth of what happened there when he says God brought evil upon us? Did God act to make it happen? Or did God simply set them free and remove his protective hand and allow them to experience what they persistently chose in that case? And that's what happened there. Uh, now we'll go on to lesson 12. I think that even if you love the idea that God can declare a sinner righteous when in fact he is not, you still have to come back to the, to the design laws that God created life to exist on. Yes. At some point, you have to deal with that. So I think that this whole idea that just because God created life, he, he, he necessarily created an immortal soul comes to a complete halt when you realize that people, through their own choices, have come to the point where God has to let them go. And he has, he has to go through these motions that you've talked about with the world, with civilization, with individuals, because that's just the natural course of things. I appreciate that. So if we look at this question, um, will a doctor amputate limbs? Is that, is that inflicting harm? Is that inflicting harm? Well, why would a doctor do it? Save life. You know, once there is brokenness of any kind, broken bone, infections, whatever, broken, broken uh, uh, trust in a relationship, adultery, uh, once there's brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. None. No pain-free options. The only options are healing and restoration or persistent injury and getting worse to death. Those are your only options, healing or not healing. No, no, you can't avoid pain once there's brokenness. Once Adam and Eve sinned, there were no pain-free options for Adam and Eve or for God. If God lets the human race go, he grieves the loss of this creation. He loves so much it hurts him, hurts us. If he intervenes to bring salvation, to be redemptive, like a doctor reducing a bone or amputating a limb, there is pain involved now in the process of restoring and setting things right, both to God himself when Christ becomes our Savior and to the human being, to all of us. If we follow God in the path of righteousness, you will experience pain. And sometimes God, like a surgeon, has to excise necrotic tissue. 
I think that's what the flood was about, personally. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the seven cities. Without Sodom and Gomorrah and the seven cities, remember after the flood, God then tells Abraham, it's from your seed. Prior to the flood, uh, Satan doesn't know which branch of the human family the Messiah is coming from, so he's after the whole human family. After the flood, God says to Abraham, from your seed is coming the Messiah. So Satan doesn't have to target the whole planet anymore. He focuses energy on one branch of the human family, and this is why the Bible focuses on that branch of the human family, because that's the branch of the human family where the plan of salvation is being worked out and where the battle between Christ and Satan is taking place. And Satan is working to destroy that branch now, because if he can destroy that branch, he shuts down the avenue for Messiah. And by the time Christ comes, how many of the 12 tribes are left in existence and identifiable. Just two. Ten have been destroyed. They're assimilated into paganism and gone. How did that happen? Because of the corrupt practices of the pagans around them that, that they assimilated into. So my view is that Sodom and Gomorrah in the seven cities, God, with his foreknowledge, looks in and says, this is the minimum that I have to eliminate from this community in order to keep open the avenue. If I, don't get, if I don't excise this caustic lesion, Sodom and Gomorrah and the Seven Cities, their influence will overwhelm and also destroy the last two tribes. And again, no one's died. He said, I have to put these people in sleep mode. So he puts them in sleep mode, but they will rise again to finish their lives. Yes? But when they rise, they won't have the opportunity to change, right? Uh, how do you know that? Well, you have the 12 gates. We talked about that before. That are all still open, but we know that nobody will go through the gates. Why won't they go through? Because God doesn't give them an opportunity? Because they've already been set. And, and when were they set? Before or after God put them to sleep? Before. So then what difference does it make? They they set, because if they didn't have time, they could have maybe done it. But did they set them or did God set them? They set their own set. This is a great point. I'm so glad you're bringing it up. Uh, if we believe at the end of the thousand years when the wicked are raised, the New Jerusalem's on earth, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open... A period of time goes by when they build implements of war, according to Revelation. We don't know the length of that time, but there is time. It's not an instant moment. During that period of time, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. Who acts to keep anybody who was raised outside the city out of the city? No. No. He doesn't stop them. We have no evidence that he chains them or uses his agencies to put up a wall of soldiers to stop them. Who keeps them out? They individually do. What is evidenced by that? This is the power. This is the point of it. Why raise them again? There's a a reason to raise them for this very question that you have. God putting them to sleep was not a good thing. But he shows at the end... I didn't change anything. My actions only kept open the avenue so I could save as many who were willing. That's all I did out of love. But these people, they were already set completely against me. And even with all this evidence of the new Jerusalem and everything on earth, they still won't come. And I'm not keeping them out. I'd love for them to come. But they won't. So everyone that's taken put to sleep is a success on his side. It chalked up to his side. We have no evidence that... All the Sennacherib's armies are going to be lost. So, again, you said everybody that Satan put to sleep. So the people in the book of Job, the servants of Job that were put to sleep, there's no evidence that they're lost. They very well may come up in the first resurrection. Um, their only evidence was that, uh, that Satan, God withdrew his hands and it revealed Satan's character as the destroyer. So those people also are not dead, but they're in the sleep mode and they will be raised in accordance with their character, either trusting God or hardened against him. 
So just because Satan put some people to sleep in first death or evil people or war or whatever, uh, the, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, there is no evidence at all. I read, the, I read the text. They were not put into sleep mode because they were evil. They were put into sleep mode because they came to arrest Elijah. And we don't know there's 17, 18, 19-year-olds that were drafted into Ahab's army and sent out there. They will come up in the first resurrection and be in heaven. They might have been among the 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee. We don't know that, okay? But again, they're not dead. That's sleep mode. And that's the critical thing. So yes, I see God acting, and this is the, the two pieces that you have to hold in your mind to understand the Old Testament. First death is not death. It's a state of sleep. Second death is eternal non-existence. Nobody's died that. So nobody has been killed by God. And the punishment for sin is eternal death. So God has punished nobody in the Old Testament. And so you have to hold that whole idea of what the two deaths are. And the second piece you have to hold in, what's transpiring? The plan of salvation, which is hinging totally, completely on Messiah coming. If Jesus doesn't come, planet Earth is lost. And that is the entire central theme of the Old Testament. And I think we miss that at times. Go ahead. Well, I want to add one more element to what you're saying. Genesis 6, verse 5 said, this is about the flood, said, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his thoughts were thoughts. Not just every indication of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Sometimes I think we um, rationalize, we reason why things happen, and we don't recognize the toll it took on God to do this. His heart was filled with pain to have to go this direction. Let me give you this metaphor then. Parents in the room, anybody, uh, all the parents in the room, I want you to imagine that you lived at the time of the antediluvians. You lived seven or eight hundred years, nine hundred years, which means you can have 20 or 30 or 40 children and it's not a big deal. Okay, you probably couldn't do that today. And, and, and you have a, the first set of kids uh, that, that you have, they're all over age 40 or 50 or 60, and they have been just like what's described here in uh, Genesis. Uh, they're violent all the time, they're wicked, they're corrupt, uh, they're perverts, they want to... And, and you have a, a group of small children under the age of 10, little children, and these, and these, and these other children of yours are so corrupt, like Sodom and Gomorrah, they want to take your little children and they want to molest them and they want to abuse them and they want to exploit them. And and any type of intervention on your part, pleadings and praying with them, they only want to destroy and attack you too. If you're in this circumstance and you had the power to put them in cryogenic storage, you don't kill them. You just freeze them in time. Freeze them. Long enough for your other children to grow up safe without being harmed. And then you thaw them out, let them finish their life. As a parent, would you do that to protect your children? Would you be grieved that you had to do this to your older children? That's what God did in Old Testament times. He simply put people to sleep to keep open avenue for Messiah, and he raises them at the end. So this is, an, this is a very important distinction to make, and I appreciate you bringing up the fact that, it was, that God hated to have to do it. So lesson 12 is dealing with bad decisions. And before we get into the examples from the lesson, I, I thought it was beneficial for us to do a basic outline of a healthy way to deal with bad decisions, because every human being has made bad decisions. So what's the healthy way to deal with bad decisions? The difference between the mature godly people and the immature worldly people or even evil people is not that godly people never make bad decisions and the evil or immature people make 
all the bad decisions or never make even a good decision. That's not it. It's that the mature godly people, after they make a bad decision, own it, take responsibility, examine it, look at it, and update their decision-making, repair, if possible, the damage the bad decision may have made, and learn from it so they stop repeating the bad decisions. The immature or the evil will either not look at it, not learn, not update, run from it, or uh, justify it, make excuses for it, and they continue to repeat doing it over and over again. So at at its root, we all make bad decisions. The difference is simple. Do we have maturity to say, you know, that was on me. That was my bad. Will you forgive me? What can I do not to make that same decision again? What do I need to change in me? Lord, help me make these changes so I don't repeat these decisions. This is maturity. The immature don't do that. If you look at Saul and David, that's a good example. Because a couple of times at least, Saul was presented with that he did not follow God's direction. And he said, oh, but I did. So Samuel says, well, what are the bleeding and the sheep I hear? You were told to kill everything. Well, these were, were just saving the best to give as an offering to God. Rationalization, justification, yeah. Another time he did that too. But look at David's response. You're the man. You're the one that took that little pet baby sheep from the neighbor and served it to your guests, you know. And what was David's reaction? That was wrong. So so the reason, though, that the immature and or the evil uh, don't take ownership is because of fear. Fear of embarrassment, hurt feelings, rejection, guilt, loss of position, loss of power, loss of esteem, loss of reputation. Uh, So the bad choices are made. Um, They uh, uh, deny, run from. uh, Often they will run into some type of pleasure-seeking, whether it's alcohol or drugs or relationships or or distractions of entertainment, or they will um, just double down on their bad decisions, say it was the right decision, and do more of it. But here's another truism. I gave you one truism a moment ago. Once there's brokenness, there is no pain-free options. Here's another one. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. Never avoid the truth. Only delay the day you deal with it. The mature have learned this and become lovers of the truth. And in Thessalonians, it describes those who are lost by, by these words. They did not love the truth and thus be saved. You, you, you see, the, 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 the saved are not the ones who have all knowledge or know all truth. We're finite beings. We don't know all truth, none of us. But we have a heart attitude that loves truth, and our heart attitude is, Lord, you're an infinite God. I'm a finite being. I'll never know all truth. But I have a heart attitude that loves it and wants to grow in it, so help me grow in the truth at the earliest possible moment. Show, shine the light of truth into my life and show me what I need to change in my understanding, in my practices, in my methods, in my character. Show me what updates I need to make and help me grow in the truth. The immature don't like truth. Those are in darkness, don't want to come into the light, lest their evil be exposed. And so they deny, distort, and blame, and externalize. Again, the difference between David and Saul. Further, the mature have not accepted the falsehood that perfection is about performance. That's a falsehood. The immature accept the lie that perfection is about perfect performance. The mature know that's not the case. The mature know that Bible perfection is about maturity of character. 
that we grow to operate on truth and love, not on fear and selfishness. For instance, truth and love is not primarily concerned about the specific action, but whether the action is in harmony with God's character, methods, principles, and purposes. Whereas the immature have their rules to keep, and if I don't keep my rules, then they're afraid that they'll get a demerit on the books of heaven. They're afraid that they'll be called out guilty. They're afraid that they'll be legally accountable. They're afraid that they're going to be punished. And so they will do all types of hurtful things in their communities to keep the rules so that they personally will be righteous, even if it hurts their neighbor. Everybody follow me on that? That's immaturity. Someone mentioned years ago to me that kind of surprised me, saying that, have you considered that even gaining salvation for yourself could be a selfish act? You don't care what happens to other people as long as you get saved. That's the legal level form below model. That's exactly right. That's what I was pointing out. Thank you. So approach to healthy decision-making. Number one, use reason with a clear conscience use your god-given discernment abilities of reason and good con- and a clear conscience always be prayerful surrendering your life to god and asking for the spirit of truth and god's spirit to give you wisdom and discernment in your decision making and reasoning be patient contemplate study reflect gather evidences ask for input from wise mature counselors or people or friends but do not surrender your decision-making or judgment to those people. You hear their counsel, but then you, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14.5. You must be persuaded in your own mind and come to your own conclusion. This is one of the problems with many who make bad decisions. Talking about decision-making, bad decision-making. People who make bad decisions, sometimes they are so afraid of making a mistake Uh, that they yield the decision-making to somebody that they respect in authority. It could be a parent, it could be a a boss, it could be a pastor, it could be red leather books, it could be the Bible, my Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, They just look for some statement, some rule, some claim, that that then they lock on. The Bible said I must do it, so I must do it. I don't think about it, I just do it, and I'm safe. And that way, uh, if my pastor said it or the Pope said it, and I'm doing what I've been told, it's not my fault if it goes wrong, it's their fault. I'm just following the rules. We're going to come to that in just a minute. We've got to get through this. Good. Some really good examples of that. Uh, understanding God. So we have, to do, uh, we have to think for ourselves, use our good reason, get some wisdom, wisdom and counsel, but never surrender to others. Understand God's design laws. Failure to understand the basic laws upon which reality works leads to terrible decision-making, even with good motives, even with good motives, with good intentions. The doctors who bled and leached George Washington when he had pneumonia had good motives. They were trying to save him. But they didn't have the basic understanding of the laws of health. Thus, because they didn't understand the laws upon which health operate, they hurt him with good motives. So many religious people hurt people because they don't understand the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of worship, the law of exertion, the law of restoration. They don't understand the design laws upon which life is built. And they hurt people. I like this uh, little little phrase. It's often, I won't say it's universally going to get you to every good decision, but many decisions you can really, if you just use this little recipe, it's going to really help you. And you just simply say, um, what is, uh, I'm responsible, what is right, healthy, and reasonable? 
Right would constitute two categories, morally right in harmony with God's design, and then secondarily, beneath that, moral rights are always priorities, legally right. What is right? What is healthy? See, you can make decisions that are not immoral but are still not healthy. Do, do I, you know, you won't find somewhere that, uh, you know, eating, um, you know, lollipops every day is forbidden by God. But if you eat lollipops every day, 10, 12, 15, 20, 100 of them, it's not healthy. Okay? It's the laws of health question. So what's right, morally right and wrong, what's healthy across the various domains of health, and what's reasonable. Sometimes it's not a violation of God's law, it's not a violation of the laws of health, it's just not reasonable. Well, you know what, that particular purse is $900, and that one is $45. Okay? Well, there's not something that says you can't spend $900 on a purse. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. There's, n- there's, n- it's not a, it's not going to undermine your health, but it might not be reasonable depending on your budget. Okay, you follow what I'm saying? Okay, right, healthy, reasonable. Use that to, in your decision making. Uh, allow feelings to be information to you, but never be the determining force in your decision making. Do you want healthy decision making? Don't let your feelings determine. I would tell you this, though. Give greater weight to feelings of apprehension, caution, and discomfort than feelings of euphoria and positive interest. In other words, if you're about to make some decision and you've got, I'm uneasy about this. I'm, I'm not, ah, that's, that's what doesn't feel right to me. Give more weight to that so that it causes you to pause, reflect, examine, weigh, discuss, and identify why am I uneasy. Find out why. Then the feelings of, hey, this, this feels, I can't wait to get, I'm so excited. Uh, don't give, uh, that needs to be tempered by your good judgment. In the aftermath of any choice, be open to new information that you didn't have at the time you made the choice and assess and update your decision-making and you might need to reverse course and go the exact opposite way you started because you now have new information you didn't have when you made the first choice. Some people who live in fear of making bad decisions, it's all, I've got to do the right thing. They don't know how. They're afraid of making choices because it might, it might turn out not to be good. That's okay. You're a finite being. You do the best you can. You make the decision, go through the process, reflection, prayer, wisdom, weigh the evidence, make the choice, and then you might get new information. It's not the best choice. You just simply update your decision, make a new choice. And then when one realizes a actual bad choice has been made, own it, learn from it, examine it, repair it if possible, and update your decision-making so you stop making the bad choices. Um, In the lesson um, for the day, it talks about... um, the impact that the pagan uh, wives were having upon the children. And I just want to take a brief moment and point out that this is a critical point, not just the impact of the spouse on spouse impact, like we always talk about Solomon and his wives corrupting him, but the, but the impact of the pagan wives on the rearing of the children and teaching them ungodly principles. You understand that it is well known in history that if you want to change a society, get the school systems. 
If you can get to the kids and educate and teach the kids over a course of two generations, or one even perhaps, the society will change. In America, has the, has the U.S. educational system impacted our society when we move from a God-centered educational system to an evolutionary-centered educational system? What about teaching of sexuality, marriage, gender? Has that teaching in the schools, is it affecting a shift in our society? What about um, moral relativism? Your, that's your truth. That's not my truth. We all have our truth, and everybody's truth is truth. When we teach this, are we having an impact on society and well-being? You see, some of these things are outright lies. Your opinion is not necessarily truth. Another one about equality. This moral relativism. We all are morally equal as children of God with equal value as human beings. But we do not all have the same equal abilities. You would not want me doing special music at your wedding. You wouldn't. And I wouldn't want some of you doing bypass surgery on my heart. You following me on this? We all don't have the same abilities. But there's this idea that we should not differentiate. Another word for differentiation is discriminate. You have a discriminating eye. You're, you're differentiating things. It depends on what you're differentiating or discriminating. We should never discriminate based on arbitrary things that have no value like skin color or race. It's, it's ridiculous. But we should discriminate based on abilities. Based on character qualities. If you're hiring somebody for your business, you really don't want to hire somebody whose character is that of a thief. You really don't. I don't mean a history of stealing. I'm talking active character of a thief. Because a person of history of stealing can have to repent and have a new heart and right spirit, become a loyal, faithful person, and have good character. I don't mean that. I mean the active character of a thief. You don't want that quality in your, in your business, do you? So parents and grandparents, I want to affirm your responsibility to educate your children because they're going to be influenced by this world, teaching the truth. A recent study published, just a little sign, in, uh, in the September 2019 pediatrics found that if children were restricted to less than two hours of recreational screen time a day, slept at least 9 to 11 hours a night, and had one hour of vigorous physical activity a day, that they had significantly reduced impulsivity and attention problems than kids who watched more screen time, had less sleep, and had less physical activity. It significantly alters brain development. Sunday's lesson points out the ability um, that they lost the ability to read scripture, and therefore they were uh, threatened to have their identity lost, and... Therefore, they had to have the, the scripture put in their language where they could understand it. I would simply quickly say that how many of you can read Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek? Uh, me, me either, really. We can't, no, we're, we're, nobody reads it like you read English. Okay? It, most scholars that, that are professors don't really read it like we read English, and it's really not to be read that way anymore. But So what do we read? We read translations. Do you think the biases and assumptions and premises of the translators impact how they translate? Anybody bilingual? 
Anybody bilingual? A couple of bilingual people in there. When you translate, I can tell you, you will have multiple options to pick that are legitimate options. Not, not, you can pick multiple options on how you translate the word. And, and no, no one word really has a single one word representation in another language. And so this is why the remedy has aggressively looked to try to filter the Bible through design law because every translation that's been done has been done after Constantine's conversion and after it became assumed. And everybody knew without question God's law works like human law. It's a system of imperialism and rules and punishment. And so much of this penal legal language has been translated by the translators into the scripture. Yes? But in that, do you think it's possible that the translators lost some of the truth of God's message? Or do you think that we can take that as the Bible as God's true message? Oh, no, I absolutely believe some of the truth has been, um, um, what's the word? You said lost. I think it would be more like smudged. When you have a painting where you get some, some you know, have you ever seen a painting and then they restored it and it became the bright vivid? So the, 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 the imagery is still there and the truth is still there, but it's hidden under a, a certain cloud of, of language that was never intended for it to be hidden behind. So I wouldn't say lost. I would simply say warped a little bit, distorted a little bit, hidden a little bit, but not lost. More difficult to perceive. More difficult to perceive, yes. It's, it's like, you've seen some of those old, that, that, where they burned candles in the church for years, and they got that smudgy kind of stuff, and they clean it, and it's, whoa, wow, that was always there, but we couldn't see it because of the, that's what the, the, the legal language has done to Scripture. Um, so, first paragraph, Monday's lesson, and I'm going to spend a little time on this, because um, first paragraph says, Solomon was led deeper into sin by the choices he made. It would be accurate to say that Solomon caused his own ruin by disobeying God's command for kings of Israel, quoting Deuteronomy. Neither shall he, the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Solomon's life uh, is used in an, as a negative example. Not only, and point uh, about Solomon now. Was it wrong for Solomon to multiply his wives because God gave a command? Or did God give a command because it was wrong? If God had never given the command in Deuteronomy, he never took the initiative to verbally articulate the command, would that have made it right? Or is it still wrong? Still wrong. Okay. Do you understand it's wrong because of the design laws of God and God simply articulated that, but it wasn't made wrong when God articulated that? Yes. We have a wonderful example of that in Romans where Paul says, Sin reigned from Adam to Moses before there was a command. That's right. They're beautifully said. Thank you for that. So the second paragraph, um, it says, the command not to intermarry was, about, was not about nationalism, but about idolatry. People in the Bible married non-Israelites. Moses married uh, Zipporah. Uh, Boaz married Ruth. Uh, instead, the issue with intermarriage in these commands concerning marrying someone uh, who is of a different faith or of no faith. The problem was that the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's time did not choose to marry believers in God. The um, Edenic, uh, Edenic plan uh, for marriage called for complementary wholeness to partners in spiritual faith as well as um, other significant values. And it, so, the lesson for us today, do we marry people who are complementary to us? Does this mean the same beliefs about God? What about same denomination? Can people of the same denomination actually worship different gods? 
Would that be a good match? Yeah. Mm. The Bible talks about Bible giving formulas for relationships um, in the last paragraph. When you think of a formula, math formulas, there are math formulas. There are chemistry formulas. What are formulas always based upon? Math, chemistry, or whatever. The laws upon which reality operates. So if you want a formula for relationships, you can't write a formula or understand a formula if you don't understand the laws upon which God built reality to operate. That's what they're based upon. And I really want to get into Wednesday's lesson because it talks about sending away mothers with children doesn't seem rational or even right to us. However, we must remember that this was a unique time in history um, and so forth. What do you think about sending mothers and children away from their husbands and and sources of support? Some uh, in the emails that I received about the flood and about God putting people to death also argued that God would never do this, that it was Nehemiah's plan. Nehemiah came up with it on his own, and God was not behind this. This was his human initiative, and God would never cause a a, a husband to send his wife away. Although God commanded Abraham to send Hagar away. Yo, I didn't bring that one up to him. Thank you. I love that. I love that. Uh, So... Such thoughts that God would never do this are are predicated on emotionalism and sentimentalism rather than understanding how reality works and how love functions. Love always heals. It always saves. It never destroys. But in order to know what action is necessary to heal and to save, one has to understand reality. What's transpiring? Are doctors mean and cruel? We asked this earlier for amputating limbs. No, they're not. Can we decide whether a doctor is mean simply by talking about, hey, that guy cut that guy's leg off? Or do we have to know more than the leg was cut off? Do the circumstances of cutting off a leg matter? Yes. 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 See, God hates divorce because divorce only happens. Divorce only happens when love breaks down. But God gave the writ of divorcement because, quote, the hardness of their hearts. You could say the hardening of the arteries, the hardness of their hearts. In other words, love had been obstructed. And when relationships become destructive, either from hard-hearted husbands who abuse their wives or from idolatrous wives who corrupt their husbands, either way, the marriages, rather than being blessings, are gangrenous limbs that need to be severed. They need to be severed. Further, in the context of ancient Israel, they were the conduit. Israel was the conduit for Messiah. And these marriages to pagan wives were Satan's attempt. Remember Balaam's instruction? Balaam, Satan's man, gave him specific instructions to send your wives in and marry amongst them and corrupt them. That was the, that was the, the instruction. It was Satan's plan to corrupt them uh, so that he can shut down Avenue for Messiah. Some don't like this. They think, and one of the people who emailed me said, I don't find anything in inspiration about your pet theory, it was my pet theory, (laughs) that the Old Testament was uh, God keeping open avenue for Messiah. Well, this is out of a book uh, called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 335. Some of you might have heard of it. It's called, By Leading Israel to This Daring Insult and Blasphemy to Jehovah, Satan Had Planned to Cause Their Ruin. Since they had proved themselves to be so utterly degraded, so lost in all sense uh, of the privilege and blessing that God had offered them, and to their own solemn and repeated pledges of loyalty, the Lord would, he believed, divorce them, this is Satan, but divorce them from himself and devote them to destruction. Thus would be secured 
the extinction of the seed of Abraham. That seed of promise that was to preserve the knowledge of the living God and through whom the Messiah was to come. The true seed that was to conquer Satan. The great rebel had planned to destroy Israel and thus thwart the purpose of God. It's not my pet theory. It's the, it's the reality of what was transpiring. And then um, we're going to close with this idea. It says in the lesson that uh, for Ezra, uh, it was apparent that Ezra did not consider the marriage as valid after it was discovered that they were in violation of the Torah command. In other words, the marriages were nullified because they were contrary to the Torah law or the law. The process of dissolution, the process was dissolution of invalid marriages. That's very interesting. (laughs) What makes a marriage valid? What makes a marriage valid? Pardon? Depends on which law lens you're looking through. Right, okay. Uh, Let's give a metaphor back to the the amputation limbs for a minute. If if people went out and they wanted to get, uh, for whatever psychotic or semi-psychotic reason, they wanted some additional ability, so they went out and they had eagle's wings sewn onto their back. Or they had a tiger paw sewn onto their chest so that they could have the power of these animals, okay? If somebody did that and afterwards they got these terrible infections and they have these immune responses going on, they're getting sick and they're dying. If doctors came along and amputated all these appendages, would this be evil for the doctor to do? Or is he cutting attachments that should have never been made? This is the uh, position of Ezra, that these people should have never been bonded to the children of Israel, that they were pagans in heart. And, uh, and what Jesus says, what, you know, what does, um, what does uh, God and mammon have in common? And so they're trying to unite things that cannot be united. A converted heart and an unconverted heart cannot be united. And it will only cause inflammation. Immune response, infection. There will either be constant tension in battle as the good is trying to stop and and prevent the evil from spreading or the heart of the good becomes infected with the evil. And so the only solution for the unconverted according to this situation was to sever those ties that should have never been made. I see those as acts of love. Some of the sentimentalists And the emotionalists who want to go on the touchy-feely approach rather than how reality works, well, that would hurt them to cut that. It's painful to use a knife and cut their skin. How could you inflict that on them? That's cruel. It's not when you understand what was happening. It was not only redemptive to the Israelites to get rid of this infecting element that was constantly bombarding their characters, but it kept open the avenue for Messiah so that we could be so that the human race could be saved and you could have opportunity for salvation. So I believe a God of love would act to sever such attachments. The question, of course, you might want to ask is what is the implication for us today? Does this mean that marriages that are legal in terms of the civil government don't necessarily constitute marriages in God's eyes? You understand this saying, what God has joined together, let no man sever. 
Isn't that the statement? Do all, uh, do all civil marriages represent God uniting two people? No. Interesting. You bunch of heretics, you. <laughs> I was being facetious, folks. That was a joke. <laughs> But Paul says that if the unbelieving person is content to stay. So my question, why did Paul tell Christians to stay with agreeable spouses who didn't believe, but Ezra told them to divorce them? It's right there. Thank you. Perfect timing. Why did Paul say this? Could it be? Remember, it was agreeable spouses, not disagreeable ones. I don't think Paul was telling people who were under constant oppression in their home to worship false gods and undermine their love for the Lord to stay in those relationships. He was telling the agreeable ones who were not opposed to their Christianity and were not working against it to stay. But they themselves haven't been converted yet. Okay, But why did he tell them to stay? My, my particular view is because Messiah had already come. The avenue is secured. The, 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 planet, the, the Redeemer has finished his uh, work on earth, and now the, he doesn't have to work in this way to keep open avenue for Messiah anymore. That's why you don't see, since the time of Christ, God acting like he did in Old Testament times in Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood and Kordath and Abiram and the firstborn of Egypt and all these others. The w- world is still just as wicked, but God is, doesn't have to take those actions because the Messiah has achieved his mission. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God of love and you are never the source of death. You're only the source of life and death comes out from sin when it pays its wage and it's full grown. But sometimes I think uh, people have been confused, Lord, and we ask that your spirit of truth will come and enlighten them and help them discern the difference between first death of sleep and the, uh, and the eternal death of sin. And realize that you and love have been working actively always to redeem, always to heal, always to restore, always to lift up, always to bless, always to save. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love will come and take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, and empower us to go out and share this life-changing message with the world that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.